0: Imagine, a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special home ownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone.
1: This is Mornings with Silly on 980 CKNW.
2: Jill Bennett in for Simi this week. So this is a post that was put on the Facebook page of the Conservation Officer Service of BC just a couple of days ago, and it reads, a Hudson's Hope man received a $5,000 fine and a five-year hunting ban after shooting a decoy deer while pit-lamping. The incident took place in the Hudson's Hope area in November 2017. Conservation officers had launched a nighttime decoy operation in response to growing concerns about night hunting in the area. During the incident, shots were fired from a truck which hit the decoy during the investigation forensic testing was used to match the ballistics evidence left behind the truck was also seized Uh, this is getting a lot of response and some other cases of illegal practices while hunting are being uh, talked about as well so we're checking in now with jesse zeman director of fish and wildlife restoration program at the bc wildlife federation jesse thanks so much for being with us
3: Thanks for having me on this morning, Joe. Uh,
2: how big of a problem is illegal hunting and this kind of uh, what is commonly referred to as pit lamping?
3: Yeah, so uh, there's a really important distinction, I think, that isn't discussed uh, publicly, but certainly amongst uh, hunters and anglers is the distinction between hunting or fishing and illegal fishing. And we call that poaching. Uh, we don't call it illegal hunting, just the way we wouldn't call um, someone with a driver's license who drives under the influence um, someone you know an illegal driver we would call them a drunk driver so it's really important for for hunters certainly and I think for the public to understand that people who don't follow the rules are called poachers um, they're not called hunters so that's important. Sure. Uh, in terms in terms of the night hunting piece of course uh, you know it's uh, it's illegal it's not consistent with the expectation around hunting. And then the other big thing, as you're probably aware, is right out of the gates when we train new hunters, one of the biggest things is to know what's behind your target, whether you're a sports shooter or you're out hunting. And, of course, at night, uh, if you can't see, you don't know what's behind it. So it presents an additional risk in terms of um, safety. So it's definitely a big concern. Uh, Night poaching is not you know, it, it comes and goes in waves. Um, certainly, poaching is an issue in BC, and I think part of that comes back to the fact that we really don't do a great job at valuing wildlife in our province.
2: Uh, and you raised some interesting points in that hunting is a, a very—it's um, not—it's not something that you just walk out one day and you go and decide I'm going to become a hunter. There's a lot of responsibility and a lot of education that goes with that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So if you're interested in getting into hunting you would have to take the conservation outdoor recreation education program which is a hunter education program and in addition to that um, to own a firearm in Canada of course you need to complete a possession acquisition license another course in terms of safe firearms handling so yeah absolutely there's a significant time investment and financial investment before you can even become a hunter Um, it's a it's a it's a big effort so when we have people that go out and break the rules and poach like this um it certainly is not consistent with what we're looking for here
2: uh, a lot of people are joining this conversation and raising uh, other, uh, you citing other examples of things that have been done, uh, the poaching that has taken place. Uh, in this case, the one that I just referenced, uh, the Conservation Service uh, is saying that this person received a $5,000 fine and a five-year hunting ban after shooting this decoy deer uh, while pit-lamping. Uh, should the fines be uh, more? Should there be more penalties for this?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and in this case, there's, a, there's an additive piece to the story in the sense that the same individual last year was charged um, for a number of uh, offenses unrelated to hunting. And also this individual had apparently a black bear in a cage on their property. So that, you know, the question is, should this person really own firearms? And should this person have a, have a hunting license ever? And that again, comes back to the fact that we do a really poor job of valuing wildlife in, in British Columbia.
2: Uh, are there any scenarios that you're aware of or can recall where somebody has had their hunting license taken away for life rather than just slapping somebody with a 5-year ban uh, the conservation service saying you're not doing this anymore?
3: Yeah, it's it's very uncommon uh, and I think that's part of the challenge and certainly you know we've seen that um in the in the world of fish as well where people are catching Dozens of salmon or in cases where people are specifically going out and targeting uh, endangered salmon, catching and keeping them Uh, quite often, you know, the government of Canada and the provincial government just pass it off as not a big deal. And I think for the people of B.C., when we talk about endangered species like caribou as well, um, it's a big deal.
2: Uh, and, and I think people would like to see people held more accountable. Uh, getting back to what you mentioned, and I know people have been commenting as well, uh, here's an individual who, who not only was charged uh, with these offenses or or, or faced the, the fine and the five-year ban, uh, but you've got to think if somebody's caught with a bear or a bear cub in a cage on their property, there should be more penalties.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, you know, there's two pieces to that. And And in this case, you know, it's it's not as huge of a sustainability issue, but we've dealt with poaching issues on Vancouver Island with Roosevelt elk. Um, That's an ongoing issue. It's been going on for years and we have a whole bunch of really small populations that conservationists, First Nations, hunters have spent a lot of time and money trying to recover uh, Roosevelt elk populations. And we've had a long history of poaching. And so... That affects us all, Uh, people who want to go out and see Roosevelt elk and people who would like to go out and hunt hunt them to provide meat for their family. No one gets those opportunities when people essentially steal from the public.
2: Uh, and uh, another post by the, the Conservation Service as well, and this was just a day before uh, that one about uh, pit lamping, uh, April 12th, they talked about overfishing of bull trout uh, in the Revelstoke area. But again, uh, the fines uh, that uh, were given out in that case were less than $2,000, about $1,700, which again doesn't seem like a huge deterrent if somebody is uh, feeling like the rules don't apply to them.
4: Yeah,
3: and and in these cases, you know, when we get into the world of kind of this commercial harvesting, um, where people are selling uh, sockeye uh, on the on the black market, or they're selling prawns or crabs, then it becomes real. So if someone's out and they're making, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a day catching prawns without a license and selling them, or crabs or salmon, and the fine is a few hundred dollars, then what's the incentive to the stop? There isn't any. Right. Yeah. And so so that 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 really comes back to the challenge. And in terms of our conservation officer service and DFO, um, our protection folks, They don't have the budget or the time. And again, that just points back to the fact that Canada and BC really don't value these resources appropriately.
2: Have you seen things change at all during the pandemic in that? I know early on we were talking about perhaps people getting back into hunting or or realizing that that was something that could still be done in a safe way and in a distanced way. Has that had an impact?
3: Yeah, we've definitely seen a big surge in people um, getting their hunting license and also in angling. And then there's another part to this that I, I think is going to be part of the story going forward, um, hopefully, is that, you know, there are a lot of people leaving the city and moving away. And in terms of COVID, people are able to work remotely. And we're definitely seeing a lot more use in, uh, I guess we'd call it rural BC where people are trying to connect with their food and they want to spend time with their friends and family and and they're moving away. So we are seeing a big uptick and I hope it it sticks because the more people you have doing those activities, of course, more people who care about the environment and about our resources and hopefully we do a better job of taking care of them in the long run.
2: All right, Jesse, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much. Appreciate you making some time for us this morning.
3: Thanks, Jill. Have a great day.
2: All right, you too. That is Jesse Zeman, Director of Fish and Wildlife Restoration. That's the program with the BC Wildlife Federation.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about public art and the importance of it. The St. Paul's Foundation has announced that the O'Dane Foundation has donated four million dollars. That's for the new St. Paul's Hospital and Jim Patterson Medical Center. This is a gift that will help establish the O'Dane Public Art Program at St. Paul's Hospital. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Michael O'Dane, Board Chair of the O'Dane Foundation, and Brooke Bosma, Chief Development Officer of the St. Paul's Foundation. Thanks so much for both of you being with us. Good,
4: good morning, morning for you. having us Jill.
2: Uh, I want to start with Brooke if I can to talk a little bit more about this and what this particular art project and program is going to look like.
4: Uh, thanks so much for having us. First off let me just say thank you to Michael and to the O'Dane Foundation for this very generous gift. It means a lot to the project and it, uh, it will mean a lot to the entire campus and the thousands of people that visit it every day. What our plan is, is to use these funds in order to um, build out a public art program for the entire campus uh, at the Jim Pat- Pattison Medical Center and to, uh, and to celebrate, to uh, celebrate uh, the Indigenous land and to also celebrate uh, our, our Catholic heritage uh, at that site and to create a welcoming place so that patients, uh, caregivers, workers feel welcome there every, every single day.
2: Uh, Michael, I'll bring you in on this as well. We often talk about funding for hospital equipment, and we tend to think about more the medical side of things when we're talking about a new hospital. How important is it to have an art program and have art be part of this?
5: Well, this is a um, marvelous opportunity for our foundation to uh, combine our um, long-term interest in the visual arts with a uh, marvelous new um, medical center and uh, it's a first uh, for us to to uh, to uh, support a, a hospital in this way but uh, I think it's uh, something that will be uh, really pay off for the um, the people of uh, British Columbia because uh, St Paul's is a um, resource for the whole uh, province and uh, I guess to my way of thinking I'm not an expert on the subject but uh, hospitals can be a pretty scary place and uh, I think uh, Artists can uh, help uh, uh humanize uh, those <laughs> those places and and um i i think uh, that art can um, play an important role in um, making them uh, more um, more more sympathetic and more interesting to the um, public and particularly um i'm glad i was glad to hear that the um uh, St. Paul's is thinking of uh focusing on the art of the uh, northwest coast, that uh, marvelous kind of art that uh, the original people of this uh, land have been making for thousands of years. So uh, that that really got the attention of, um, of my family.
2: And Brooke, if you can kind of expand on that as well, and you mentioned that or touched on that, that this is going to have or be reflective of of that traditional art, but also kind of the Catholic identity reconciliation. It seems like a lot to to, to put in uh, to this to this uh, to making this project.
4: It, it is, and uh, you know what we're what we're attempting to do, or what we're going to do, is is move a uh, hundred and twenty five. A uh, year-old hospital. It's uh, sort of an architectural piece of downtown Vancouver, and we're shifting it. You know, we're moving it about three kilometers to the east. We think that we have the opportunity with these with these funds in this project to create a, a new precinct within Vancouver, and uh, to make it, as Michael says, welcoming and open. Uh, you know, art has the power to to inspire. It has the power to heal. And so we're excited in order to uh, put these elements together and use this funding in order to uh, see that vision accomplished.
2: Uh, and Michael, I, I know that the, the O'Dane Foundation uh, is certainly one of the biggest, I think, uh, uh, foundations as far as funding art and, and making sure that it is a part uh, of these things. What, what was it about St. Paul's uh, that was uh, attractive to the foundation or that caught the foundation's eye and made the foundation want to be part of this?
5: well um, i um i think it's fair to say that probably if i had not had some uh, personal encounters with uh, st paul's uh I, 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 we wouldn't have been uh, so uh, receptive but uh, st paul's has uh, been a, um, a a certainly a, a resource in in my life for, for some years and uh, so it's an opportunity um uh, in that sense for for, for me to um be able to say thank you to the um, wonderful um people at uh, uh, the medical staff at uh, St. Paul's, who, who have had to work in some pretty uh pretty tough uh conditions and um and so i i think this new um, this new building will um uh, besides uh, going from i understand 400 to 700 uh, beds will um be able to uh be be a more a uh, better working uh, place uh, uh for for the um for the wonderful staff that they have at uh at St. paul's so that was part of my thinking. The other thing was that public art is an opportunity to support the terrific artists that we we have in our community and um provide some uh, some work for them they 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 also have been going through a pretty tough time during the um the pandemic and um So uh, I I think the whole timing was uh, excellent from our point of view.
2: And, Brooke, you mentioned something as well, that that art can help when uh, people are in what, for many people, is a scary place. It can be an intimidating place. But it's also, people interpret things so differently, what somebody might consider uh, soothing or calming. Somebody else might find uh, upsetting or disturbing. So how do you find that balance?
4: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. We're lucky because, um, you know, the O'Dane Foundation uh, has blessed us with, with uh, a member of their foundation to actually help us on our art committee. Um, of course, uh, our committee is made up of, of builders and, and clinicians. And so uh, happy to, uh, to say that Dinah Agaitis, uh, formerly with the Vancouver Art Gallery, is actually part of our committee and our working group in order to define how we go through this process. We believe that it will be um, an in-depth process. It's not uh, simply sort of flipping through, uh, you know, some images and deciding, hey, we like this or, 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 or we like that. We need a deep process of engagement. And we believe that we have the time as construction happens over the next, you know, four or five, six years to uh, engage deeply with our stakeholders uh, internally, externally, and to engage our patients around what is uh, What's healing for them? Uh, how is the art and the campus going to inspire them and welcome them when they get there? Uh, obviously, we all have had to have a trip to the hospital at times, and, and it is scary, and it is intimidating, and there is the unknown there. So our goal here is to work together and create a process that's inclusive so that people, when they arrive, feel welcome and feel safe.
2: All right. So we'll have to leave it there for this morning. But thanks to both of you so much for coming on the show.
5: Thank you.
4: Thank you so much.
2: All right, that is Michael O'Dane, board chair of the O'Dane Foundation, and Brooke Bosma, chief development officer with St. Paul's Foundation. And again, uh, the O'Dane Foundation uh, giving a $4 million uh, donation for public art uh, that will be at the new St. Paul's Hospital. This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special home ownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone.
2: Well, if you are one of the many Canadians who has not yet filed taxes, and you're avoiding it because of the confusion over the past year, and maybe because you worked from home or you had some government funding, maybe you were on CERB, you are not alone. A lot of Canadians are struggling a little bit with how to file this year. And time is running out, so we thought we would take a few moments to talk about this. And joining me with more on what Canadians are dealing with is Aurel Corsell, Assistant Vice President, Tax and Estate Planning at IG Wealth Management. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you and good morning.
2: What are the main things you're seeing people concerned about? I know there was a survey done by Polaris to treat uh, strategic insights for IG Wealth Management. What are the things that people are kind of grappling with right now?
1: Uh, the survey showed us that two thirds of Canadians are dealing with pandemic related tax filing considerations for their 2020 tax year and, anything that's related to the pandemic and taxes is brand new to people. So uh, they are struggling trying to understand what's going on and what they have to report, what what are they entitled to report, what they have to include in income. And uh, the survey told us that about a third, are only about a third are strongly confident that they understand what they're doing from a tax perspective related to COVID. So that means that a lot of people who, do have some COVID issues to deal with in their taxes, are just not very confident about what they're doing. Uh,
2: So we know we're dealing with it, and as you just mentioned and touched on, so if somebody, say, collected CERB, how does that affect their taxes?
1: Well, there were multiple benefits that were paid out to Canadians last year, and and CERB was probably the biggest one because, in fact, the government told us that they paid out about $81 billion to Canadians under the CERB program alone, and basically, whether it's SERB or any of the other programs, all those benefits are all taxable. So individuals should have received tax slips from the government uh, and will have to include those amounts in income. The kicker, though, is that there was no tax withheld on CERB uh, or the Canada Emergency Student Benefit, for that matter. Some of the more recent programs, such as the Canada Recovery Benefits, there's only a 10% withholding, which ultimately means that these amounts have to be included in income. But little to no tax was withheld at source like there would be on your employment income. So now you're filing a return and you may be finding out that you're owing taxes on those benefits uh, that you did not expect to have to pay.
2: Right, because if you're in the position where you had lost your job or were a recipient of these benefits, you probably weren't in the best position to be socking away the amount of money you were going to be owing now in taxes.
1: That's possible, yes. I mean... Some people may have had other sources of income, so they may have more income, which makes all this taxable. If you had very little income, maybe you don't have a lot of tax to pay. It'll be case by case, but there certainly will be a number of Canadians who will be sitting there with a tax bill that they did not necessarily expect.
2: And what about working from home? A lot of Canadians uh, have been working from home and and I guess are trying to figure out, do they go for this the, the blanket $2 a day that they can claim or do you go a little bit more complicated and claim the space that you work from home, part of your bills, part of your mortgage and how do you go about doing that?
1: Well, certainly for the majority of people, it'll be the simpler approach. It'll be that $2 per day that you work from home up to 200 days, so a maximum of $400 deduction. And you mean, you can do that as long as you worked four consecutive weeks from home and you're spending 50% of your time working for your employer. So that is the simpler approach. If you want to go the more complex and cumbersome approach uh, where you have to keep all your receipts, you uh, have to figure out how many square feet you used in your home, how what percentage of time it was used for for employment and and then you also need a form from your employer to complete in order to be able to claim those expenses it certainly can be done it's just a much more cumbersome process and for most people especially if you're not paying rent if you're paying a rent uh, for many people then then the more complex method may be more beneficial but if you're not because of the limits on how much what you can claim and also the fact of all you have to it'll be very small percentage of your total expenses that can be claimed then you're probably better off using the simpler method.
2: And uh, self-employed, and especially, I guess, making it even more complicated, if you became self-employed in the past year, what should people in that scenario be uh, looking out for?
1: Well, for those people who just started being self-employed, it's it's a new world for them, uh, as much from their business perspective as it is from a tax perspective. Because when you start a business, you have a whole bunch of now recording and reporting that you have to do in terms of tracking all your income, tracking your expenses. And those are the obvious ones. But then also, if I start a small business, for example, and I'm running out of my house, I have the same issue in terms of the uh, home office expenses that we talked about a minute ago, where I can write off a portion of my home. So I got to keep track of all my expenses and my percentages. Same thing for my car. If I were to use my vehicle for work for my self-employment, now I may be able to claim some of my vehicle Uh, as an expense. So now I need all my gas receipts, my insurance receipts, my repairs, and I have to do all those calculations. So it adds that much more complexity to my tax filing process uh, that I didn't experience in past years.
2: All right. Uh, Things definitely to keep top of mind at this time of year. Aurel Cursell, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
2: All right. Aurel Corsell, Assistant Vice President, Tax and Estate Planning at IG Wealth Management.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Got an email from a listener in response to that short story that we played a bit earlier on in the program, and that was about the unfortunate incident with an MP being caught changing from a jogging outfit into work clothes and getting caught on camera and saying, when I'm attending a Zoom meeting... I need to log in shortly before it begins. I guess with government, they need to be on alert twenty four seven. Yeah, a lot of questions about that. And one of the other things too, and I know we've been laughing about it, but one of the other important questions has been also uh, the fact that it wasn't something that happened during the public part of the meeting. It was during the private part of that committee, which means uh, somebody leaked the photo. And that raises a whole bunch of other questions as well. So my guess is we haven't heard the last of that. We are going to move on from that though, and talking about uh, something that's been in the news headlines, BC asking the federal government to grant the province an exemption under federal law to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs for persons personal use. Uh, That would make BC the first jurisdiction in Canada doing that if the request is granted. Sheila Malcolmson joins us now, BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thanks so much for being with us this morning.
6: Thank you for the opportunity, Jill. Uh,
2: What do you think this will do as far as if BC gets this exemption to decriminalize small amounts of illicit drugs? What will this actually do for people who are dealing with addiction?
6: The intention of approaching decriminalization as a way to combat the overdose crisis is about n- knocking out that stigma and discrimination and feeling of, of shame that so that people will feel more comfortable reaching out for help. We want people to uh, recognize and and feel uh, uh, challenges with addiction as a health care issue and not a criminal issue. and. In, it will remove a barrier to accessing the, the services that we're standing up, and, and it'll also allow police to focus on the true crime, focusing on the drug dealers uh, and, and deeper crime, not this uh, uh, social justice problem.
2: How will that lead, though, to people accessing more services? If we're talking about decriminalization, it's still going to be a drug supply that is tainted with fentanyl. It's still going to be a drug supply that is killing people. How do we go from decriminalizing to then somebody actually accessing services?
6: Well, this is a really important part of the conversation that decriminalization alone doesn't help uh, if there aren't those services to go to, and uh, and if, and if we're not successful with the federal application, then then still we'll continue to deepen our investment and broaden the ways that people can can access and get treatment for uh, for addictions. We've uh, a year ago when the pandemic first hit, we stood up safe supply. There's been since then a. 400 percent increase in people accessing that. Uh, we've doubled the number of supervised consumption sites. But if you are feeling embarrassed about your addiction problem, you're not going to walk into a safe consumption site. Uh, so, so there's kind of an example of the interface between standing up more services, but then removing that stigma that prevents people from, uh, you know, in their in their own minds uh, accessing the service. Uh, that's a, a really important link. Uh, and uh, we've also been um, expanding the medication-assisted treatment opportunity. Now, 23,000 people across British Columbia are, are able to uh, take a prescribed medication that, um, that actually treats their addiction. But again, people will not ask their doctors for that if they are feeling embarrassed about having a, a substance use problem.
2: Uh, we're still seeing uh, unfortunately and tragically record numbers of overdose deaths so uh, what has your government done then to actually deal with that if we're seeing this problem get worse and worse
6: it is it has been a terrible year and the five-year anniversary of the declaration of the public health emergency is definitely a a somber moment and a time to take stock that's overdose deaths had dropped in 2019 for the first time since that public health emergency was declared was an indication that the the diversity of treatment options and, and life-saving harm reduction options that had been stood up um, in BC were making a difference. Um, and there have been, there's been an external evaluation of that as well. But what happened when the pandemic hit, two things at the same time, one with border closures, the drug toxicity levels just skyrocketed. Uh, interruptions in international illegal drug supply has meant that dealers have been introducing really dangerous and much more toxic substances into what people are consuming. And secondly, uh, more people, because of physical distancing, you know, weren't able to access Uh, Supervised consumption sites, and also more people using alone, and people using alone or dying alone, Uh, and that's part of the stigma piece too. You know, we've just had so many stories from firefighters and first responders of finding people who have overdosed, you know, in the basement of their suburban home, you know, and if they'd let their you know family members know, I'm going. Downstairs, not just to play video games but to um, but also to use a drug check on me in five or ten minutes if i don't come back out you know that that would have saved a life and if um if people are hiding their addictions, then they are putting themselves with this terribly toxic drug supply, they're putting themselves at greater risk.
2: Right. So shouldn't the focus then shift a little bit or, or focus more on treatment rather than decriminalization, which which some will argue, yes, it's important. But then we hear from police saying, well, we haven't really been going after people with small amounts of illicit drugs for years anyway.
6: If this. It's true, we are taking a diversity of approaches and uh, and we are hitting this problem with um with on all fronts. We added another hundred publicly funded adult treatment beds last month. We're doubling the number of youth treatment beds. We are um, innovating first in Canada that's offering a safe supply prescription safe supply option. Uh, we've also been training nurse prescribers uh, to be able to prescribe medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. So, so we are we are working on multitude of fronts, uh, and that is absolutely necessary. And that will carry on, um, and will expand those efforts, um, whether or not decriminalization decriminalization goes ahead. But, you know, it is an important piece, even though, like, a year ago, uh, uh, Mike Farnworth, uh, Minister for Public Safety, asked police to stand down and not pursue criminal charges. Uh, But that approach um, is a little bit inconsistent. Uh, But regardless, if people... It's one thing about whether the police are going to go ahead and, and press charges. It's another thing for people to know that they will not face any criminal uh, or any police uh, interference if they come forward and reveal that they have an addiction problem or they have, are found to be carrying uh, illicit drugs, um, a small amount. Um, it's a, this stigma that is driving people to use alone, and, um, and a particularly young men using alone. The um, majority of people that are dying of overdose are dying in homes um, by themselves. So um, that's the biggest part of the broader public service message that decriminalization could achieve is that everybody will know this is truly a health problem and one that we're tackling from a health care perspective, not from a criminal justice perspective.
2: All right. Uh, Sheila Malcolmson, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us this morning.
6: Thanks for the conversation, Jill. I appreciate it.
2: All right. That is Sheila Malcolmson, V.C.'s Minister of Mental Health and Addictions.